and that's the URL there if anyone wants to wants to go and listen to it. Um, just something else, by the by, John Hearn is a, a freelance journalist colleague of mine in Galway, um, but I was talking to him recently, and, I, and he had an interesting story about sort of doing his first radio project, so I thought I would include it. He, like myself, is uh, primarily a print journalist, but um, he had an idea um, for someone who lived in his area. There was a, a, a young guy there in his 20s called Shane Mullins who had been in a pretty catastrophic car accident when he was 17 and had suffered serious brain damage. And he is now a motivational speaker going around telling a story about how he managed to, about his recovery, I suppose. Um, and John thought this would make a really interesting documentary and th thought it would suit radio more than it would suit uh, print. So he had no previous radio experience, but he approached Doc on One. There's actually a, a, a form on the Doc on One website, the RT Doc on One website, where you can pitch ideas. And he said that they were really open. Uh, two ideas. He said that even though he had no kind of technical experience around radio, that kind of the quality of the, of the idea and the story was more important. Um, and so he got that program made. He said he got all the technical and audio kind of backup that he, that he needed. Um, and that was broadcast, um, I think, earlier this year. And he just texted me this morning to say it was nominated for an award. I'm not sure what award. Um, I also just wanted to mention quickly The Curious Year, which is the other sort of RT, under RT documentary slot, um, kind of short, 10 minutes, interesting uh, kind of sound pieces. I found them very open as well. I pitched them a couple of ideas before, and though they didn't get the go-ahead, they were very open to, um, to being pitched uh, interesting ideas, and even from sort of people who might not necessarily be experienced. Because The Curious Year is often, um, it's often just sort of like five or six minutes of something happening and, and recording of it. So you don't necessarily need huge experience with maybe a production to, 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 do, to do one. So just quickly, I suppose, the lessons that I think I've learned, even though I haven't been doing it for that long, I'd say just, yeah, jumping at the deep end is, is I suppose, was, was the biggest lesson I learned um, from just sending out a tweet about um, an idea for a science podcast to, to get ending up making two, two documentaries and getting funding for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm still learning technically about things like radio. I still mess up all the time on recording interviews. In fact, the, the footage from the whale, the whale watching trip, I lost all of it and had to go down and try and recreate an interview <laughs> by the sea in Baltimore and West Cork. Um, so yeah, you, you mean, it's, I suppose you do, make, you do make mistakes, but you learn. Um, it's kind of an obvious one, really, but I suppose, you know, as, as Anyone who's a print journalist often thinks, you know, well, what can I write about now? And, you know, you pitch your idea and then you might get a commission within a week and then it might be printed within a couple of weeks after that if it's a feature. <coughs> but obviously with radio, you're kind of thinking potentially six months or longer ahead in terms of if it's a documentary, in terms of how the idea, um, in terms of how long it will last. So it kind of, kind of requires a bit of a shift in, in how you think. Um, and think broadly about funding. Um, I mean, when we were doing Cybernia, we thought for a while of, of looking for private sponsorship because we thought, you know, oh, it's a science, it's a science show for general audience. We thought maybe, you know, some big uh, pharma companies would be interested, interested in sponsoring us. We never actually pursued it, but it was definitely something we kind of thought about. Crowdsourcing is obviously popular now with Kickstarter and Funded and Indiegogo. Um, I know with science communication, there were various European uh, funds available for science communication projects. Um, and it might be the same with other topics like the environment or like health or if you're, if you're in a certain area, you know, the funding might not always be from uh, within the media but might be from organizations that work within those areas, whether it be science or whether it be healthcare or whatever it might be, whatever area you want to, um, 
to make a, a documentary about. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to, I suppose, say a little bit about community radio. Um, I mean, Near FM, who I did my two radio projects for, were great. And because they're a community station, they they have a remit of public access and you know getting people in to do things and to, to learn radio. They provide training and they sort of let you make mistakes, I suppose, you know, while you're learning while you're learning your, your craft and, and give you time and give you support. So, I mean, there's 20 community radio stations in Ireland and, um, you know, if you have an idea for uh, any kind of documentary or even, or even something that's not journalistic, if it applies for the sound and vision criteria, you know, approach your local, your local community station and see if they're interested in, in putting together an application with you, you know. I mean, even if you, if you have no radio experience, it won't be, um, it won't be a, 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 a hindrance if the idea is good. And Crail.ie uh, has a list of all the um, community radio stations in Ireland. Um, I think that's pretty much it. I just, they're my, um, my contact details if anyone wants to contact me at all. That's all, thanks. Okay, just uh, before, we, before we embark on, on taking your questions, uh, just a couple of things strikes me there listening to Delaney. I suppose the first one is that it all started with a tweet yeah, um, <laughs> which says something about the world we're now living in rather than the world that uh, most of us inhabited for quite a long time. True. Uh, which is interesting as well, the, the kind of use of the new means of communications. Uh, just a couple of things. Um, the notion of, of in, in Lenny's case, it being science, but that notion of specialisation. Um, one of the things I think as journalists that some of us can be lucky enough to do is to spend a lot of our working lives working in areas that we're really interested in, as well as doing other things. Any freelance has to have, a, as people were saying this morning, a fairly wide bag of tricks uh, from which you make your living, and you do various things. But the notion sometimes of pursuing something you really want to do uh, can be very nice. In my case, I spent a lot of my life covering politics, and I was deeply interested in politics, and it was great fun. Um, and you were getting paid sometimes for you know, a real sense that you were being paid for enjoying yourself. The middle of a general election, where else did you want to be but in a count centre somewhere surrounded by it all, if that's the kind of madness you were into. Uh, and it was, uh, and is, in my case. Um, so thinking about you know, specialisations, things you're passionate about, areas in which you have an expertise that you can use to make money out of and possibly enjoy yourself in the process, as well as some of the drudgery you will have to do to make a trust. But we all have to do bits of that. Um, okay, let's, let's take any questions we have. Yes? Hi, Lenny, thanks for that. Um, the, you talked about getting 9,000 euros from Sound and Vision for two hour-long programs. Mm -hmm. So that's 4,500 per program. Can you break down the budget for, obviously, divide by two, sorry, that wasn't great. Um, can you uh, break down the budget as to how much of that went to you as program makers and how much David Near? Yeah, um, off the top. to be honest, I, I mean, I, I think I ended up getting maybe about 1,500 euro. Yeah. And there was studio fees and there was sound production fees and there, we had a, a re, uh, there, well, there was the studio fees, there was... Um, this our sound producer Gavin. There was a couple of other people who worked as researchers and did interviews as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know how how good or bad that is. Like because I was kind of new in radio, I just I just said I just wanted to do it, you know, and said fine. And I don't know whether I should have had it more or not. 
Did you have the final editorial say over your project or did Near FM um, or Sound and Vision for that one? As far as I'm aware, I did. I never, I never, um, there was never any issue, I suppose, so it never, it never came to anything, you know? Um, I presume Near FM would have control if there was something they didn't want to be broadcast, they would have, they would have control over that, but I mean, there was nothing particularly controversial in it, so it was, there was, I, actually, I mean, um, like Slatter was saying, there's no uh, news or current affairs allowed with Sound Vision, so if I wanted to talk about, say, overfishing or something like that, or something to do with marine science that has a current affairs or news angle, that was, we were kind of steered away from doing that, but that was just a condition of the funding. Just finally, who owns the shows now? You and your FM? Um, that's a good question. I Have you signed anything? I presumed I do. Unless you've signed it away, you own it. Okay. You signed the sound edition contract as yours. Do you sign the sound edition contract? I signed it, yeah. It's yours. So. Yeah. Okay. Or good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Call NPR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you sign the contract with your FM and then the day sign the contract with someone to be uh, that's Okay, you know, I honestly, I honestly don't know. If, um, um, generally, I think generally the way in which that would work is that the applicant, whoever is the applicant on the application, signs the contract with the BAI, but you must have a letter from the broadcaster undertaking that they will broadcast it. Unless an application has a letter from a broadcaster saying that they are backing the project and that they will broadcast it in a prime time slot on their station the application automatically becomes invalid. It's an essential requirement under sound division. So, Simon, yeah. can I ask you um, one or two questions about the dock on one? Are you sure, I'm, I'm, I'll do my best, is all I can tell you. Are they open to, to um, pitches? Yes, they are. Yeah. And finances, do you pay much? Um, the honest answer to what they pay, there may be people in the room who have more knowledge on that at the moment than I do. I don't know. Uh, I think it's in the money they pay. I I would, yeah, I was going to say it's in the region of two thousand euro. Yeah, I would if you have a complete package like for yeah. Yeah. for a CD with no, no. So, uh, generally, the dock on one won't take a program that you have made. They will generally do the sound operating and the making of it. They will work with you on the project. They won't take, if you make a documentary, they usually won't take your documentary and broadcast it. Very occasionally they might, but usually not. Usually they want it to be done in their studios, so they'll provide you with an operator to get very high level documentary sound quality. And they will also have an input into how the story is told. Um, a couple of people who produce on, on uh, the Dock on One are very helpful in that sense that they will work with independent producers and put a lot of time into helping it to shape the story to get it to the quality of product they want. Um, thank you. Um, can I play devil's advocate here? Um, I've been talking to some freelance broadcasters and what they tell me, and, and this, this, this may... I'm sure there's an element of paranoia in it, but nonetheless, there may be some truth in it, that the sound and vision allocations are sewn up by former RTE staff. That's nonsense. Um, well, just let me finish. Um, that, that, they, that they speak the language that, 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 that other people do not speak. No. And that there is, sorry if it, uh, Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 we can get to the fluoride. 
and that there is a cozy relationship between this dominant or, or semi-dominant group of suppliers to um, of, of programs in the Sound of Vision, uh, under the Sound of Vision program. And, and, and there's a cozy relationship between them and the, <coughs> the BAI. And those who do not come from a hitherto professional broadcasting background um, are, are, are excluded. And I, I just make one observation that this might not be entirely visible from where you sit, Simon. I think there might be a little more truth in it, or an, a, a grain of truth in it, when you look at the number of highly qualified former print journalists that, that there are around who, who struggle to, 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 to have their work broadcast. And I just throw that out as a, a devil's advocate. Okay, um, just a couple of things. First of all, may I say, I'm not here in any sense to either speak on behalf of or to defend uh, sound and vision. I'm an external assessor. That's as far as it goes. Uh, I can't talk about television programmes because I'm not involved in television programmes. Uh, but I can talk about radio programmes. And if you go onto the Sound and Vision website and you have a look at the allocation of funding and where the funding goes and to what radio stations it goes, there is, to my knowledge, and I've been involved in a number of rounds of Sound and Vision, there is no sense in which there's a cosy relationship with former RTE people. Um, the, the process is very transparent. Uh, as an assessor, I'm not allowed to assess something from somebody I know or have any professional contact with, any organisation I have professional contact with. There's a, a declaration of interest involved in it. Uh, and a lot of the Sound and Vision radio funding goes to the community sector and goes to people who are not professionally trained. Um, the other thing about Sound and Vision which I think is very valuable is that as assessors, we write reports on the programmes, and where the programme is rejected for any reason, you get a fairly detailed report back telling you the basis on which the decision not to fund it has been made, section by section of the application, and you're entitled to resubmit into a subsequent round. And very often people take that feedback and do resubmit to a subsequent round, and very often resubmissions are then approved. Uh, sometimes it's something as basic as people not putting in, say, a running order. And if you don't get a running order for a radio programme, you have no way of judging pace, context, you know, how it's actually going to sound. And often applications would be referred back on the basis of this idea looks good, uh, but we need a fuller shape of how it will sound. Because sometimes for print journalists, and this is true, sometimes for print journalists, they don't think in radio terms at all. They don't think in terms of sound. So what you get is a proposal that's a set of linked interviews that is going to sound like a very dull piece of radio. And in that event, you tend to go back and say, look, if you can uh, bring in some sound quality into it, some actuality into it, some mix of sound into it, then resubmit, and the chances are that you know, you'll, you'll do better. I wasn't, sorry, just if I may, I wasn't suggesting any misbehaviour on anybody's part, not on yours or anybody else. I Sure, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, all I'm saying is that in, in my experience on the radio side, um, you know, there's no cosy relationship that I've ever seen. Um, and in fact, not that many former RTE people, to my knowledge, on the radio side make submissions anyway, um, from what I've seen. Yeah. Um, I'm stepping in front of anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I was 
actually just going to ask you to expand on just what you said at the end there. Um, I had some commissioning editors from print in this morning talking about what they're looking for in a pitch and the do's and don'ts. Uh, you went into a bit about that print people don't think in terms of sound. What kind of things are you looking for to give a positive assessment? What are things that just make you think, no, that looks going into the circular file? Um, first of all, just to say something to you about the process, and mm -hmm. I, I will answer your question, but yeah. just to say something about the process. The process is that um, independently, usually in a round, assessors will get 30 or 40 applications over a period of time to review. In a round, there are two external assessors who don't have any contact with each other until the final meeting. So those assessments are done independently of each other. So I don't see the other assessor's assessment and they don't see mine. They go back to an internal assessor who then pulls it together and then we all meet at a meeting which makes decisions around, around the final uh, process. So that's just to say something about how that process works. Um, <clears throat> the, the application for sound and vision is very complex and it's time consuming. Um, and I have suggested that there may be ways of simplifying it because the application is a bit troublesome. The advantage where you're working with a broadcaster is that the broadcasters may well have filled in applications before and they have a knowledge of it, which simplifies it because they know what goes into what section and what you need. Basically, the, the key thing is, is it a good idea? Is it viable as a piece of radio that's likely to work? Do you have a running order? What I try to do as an assessor is, as, as a, a radio producer who's an assessor, is to read the application and see if I can hear the program off the paper I'm reading. And in a sense, I need to be able to do that to some degree. I need to have a sense of this is what we get. Now, typically, if I get a proposal for, say, a 30-minute program, and it's three linked interviews, however interesting those three interviews might be, but there's no sound of any description in it. Unless those interviews are really strong, and they're saying this is going to be a pretty flat piece of radio, it needs more than that. And that's where you might go back and say, look, you know, this would lend itself to actuality sound, to radio, to, to use and to just remember, and for anybody who's thinking about radio, it's about painting pictures in the listener's imagination. That's what you're trying to do always in radio. You're trying to make it interesting. You're trying to use all the power that the human voice has and that sound effects has and that all of that stuff has to make something more valid than you would get if you were reading it in print. That's essentially what you're trying to do, it seems to me. Um, the other thing that often applications change or fall down on is the business of the budget. Uh, because the budget is looked at and examined and decisions are made as to whether it seems reasonable for what is proposed. And sometimes you will look at a budget and you know you may for instance have four trips, you know, one to Tipperary, one to Cork, one to Limerick, and they're all done separately for mileage. And they're all they're one interview in each place, and we're devoting a day of producer time to each interview to each trip. So you have four sets of mileage and four days producer time. Now I as an assessor will look at that and say, hang on a second, there has to be a way of doing economies of scale here if all you're doing is a five or a ten minute interview with somebody and that's all that seems to be needed, well then obviously there's a problem with how you're 
your run and your show in terms of that. So budgets are looked at in those kind of ways. Again, you may get somebody saying, I need 24 days editing for a half hour program. And you're looking at what's in it and you're saying, I can't see what you're going to be doing in a studio for 24 days to achieve this 45 minutes. And on that basis, the 24 days is going to be suggested you need to, either there'll be a suggestion on cutting it or you'll be asked to resubmit having re-examined what you can do. So they're the kind of things broadly that would arise. But again, in the feedback you'll be told exactly what the, the views of the different assessors were and what you can do in, in terms of, of resubmitting. Does that? That's, yeah. Does that answer your, your question? Yeah. So just for people who haven't put together a vision application, mm. it might be useful to go through. I'm just asking if some of the things that you can actually budget for particularly if you're doing it first time around, you can buy in talent to help you learn how to do it the second time around. So you can, you can budget for a sound engineer and so forth. I mean, can you break down what's allowed in that? Um, difficult uh, in that sense because it's, it's looked at application by application. Um, but certainly, usually where you have a broadcaster broadcasting, remember that you're usually working through the broadcaster in terms of what you're doing. They have agreed to broadcast your program, but often your editing will be done, for instance, in their studios. Now, there's allowance made for paying, uh, as, as Lenny was saying, for paying the radio station around that stuff, uh, around you know days of, of editing, days of studio time. Uh, a sound technician, certainly it's viable to pay a sound technician, apart from yourself. Sometimes you may get a producer who's also capable of being sound technician. An allowance will be made for that, and they'll be paid for that in terms of the <coughs> number of days allowed. You know, if somebody's putting in for ten days and three of them are for editing, well, then you're going to say fine. Whereas if they put in for ten days and three of them weren't for editing, you might say, you know, does he need ten days or whatever? Um, but I mean, I, I don't have a sense um, that generally, in my experience, I don't have a sense that the assessors are people who are kind of Thatcherite in their approach to budgets. Um, the assessors generally look at budgets and try to give people what they think is a reasonable budget. But you do have a situation where the fund is limited. So if you decide to invest you know, 40 grand in one project, that may have implications that there are another you know, set of smaller projects for, say, community stations that then won't be funded in that round because there's a limited amount of money. Um, Lenny, you said sorry, uh, that you haven't kept resubmitting, resubmitting, until Ireland's ocean was... Did you put together the original DAI pro project, or did Gavin do it for The funding application? Yeah. I, I had to uh, come up with a, uh, a programme treatment, I suppose. So I had to... Um, I did kind of a one-page summary of what I proposed would be in the programmes. Um, that was broken down into a running order. Um, I also had to contact various experts that I had planned to, witness, uh, to interview and um, to get their permission to put their names in the application. So like the Marine Institute um, gave us, a I approached them and they gave us a letter of support saying, you know, we will provide experts for interview for this program and stuff. Um, but all of the stuff around sort of budget and all of the sort of, I suppose the stuff that would be in, in every Sound and Vision application as opposed to the stuff that was specific to the content of my show, uh, Near FM uh, did and then we just, once it was all in one document, we just, banged it back and forth a few times by email. Um, and then I, I presume after that, Gavin just um, kept resubmitting it, you know. Um. 
Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry, apart from that, it's a little bit of, it might be outside your portfolio, just, I'm actually doing a submission at the moment. Um, when you submit your, your, um, your proposal to the BAI, I think in my case it could have been August last, and then you get approval at around Christmas, and then you might start work, you know, after Christmas holidays in February or March. A lot of your contributors will have died or emigrated or gone someplace. How important... <laughs> we hope they won't have died. I've been elected to the European Parliament. But, um, That's a better game. <laughs> how, you know, how stringent are the BEI? For example, if I, if I have, um, in I'm going to interview the Labour Party spokesperson on transport, okay, and I can't get him, I might interview the Finn Falls spokesperson on transport. Or, you know, are they that sticky that they'll say, oh, no, no, hang on a minute, you, you said Dr. Smith, now, you want, now you're changing that to Dr. Jones? No, not at all. Um, the, it is important to list contributors. Yeah. And it is important to show evidence that the majority of contributors have confirmed their willingness to participate. Yeah, I, uh, because the, the problem is that you may get somebody doing a program on religion who says to you, I'm going to interview the Pope, I'm going to interview you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I'm going to interview the Archbishop of Dublin, and when the programme is actually made, they interview a Monsignor, a parish priest and a curate. Um, there's a problem with what we've agreed to fund and now the end product the audience is getting. Okay? Um, so you do need a certain amount of confirmation, but certainly changes in contributors is something that happens and I've never known it to be a cause of you know, major difficulty unless you're building a program around one contributor. You know, let us say that we're doing something in America and that we believe we can get an interview with Barack Obama and the whole project hangs around it and there's a lot of money involved in the project. Well then the BAI may say, well if Barack doesn't do this, the whole program falls because he's central to the whole lot of it. And, and that sometimes will arise, but not that often, in, in just in my experience. Can I ask you one final question? I'm sure, sorry. yeah. W what happens then if, for example, you feel as the, as the project is progre pro progressing that you know, this interview won't actually fit in with the one that, we, uh, that just ran the front of Can you change your running order slightly because you feel you're getting a be better, or adding co contributors that you may not have put in, that you feel you're enhancing the okay. program? I have to give you an honest answer and say the process, and there is a process that goes on of tic-tacking between applicants and the BAI, you know, when the, the project is in production. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that process no. because I've never been involved in it. Um, but I mean, normally there'll be a, a, an internal BAI person who is your link person as applicant how strict they are on some of that negotiation, the honest answer is I simply don't know because it's outside of, of what I do. Okay. Comment, it wasn't my fault that there's a new pope. <laughs> 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 yeah. If you get an interview with the old guy, what it's like to be the first pope to be just, just to answer that, um, I, I'd not to answer it, but just to t talk about my experience with it. Um, with the Ireland's Oceans programme, once... We we do, I did have, end up changing quite a few contributors uh, because um, just because I couldn't find Dad. people I, yeah because 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 in my case the original application was maybe two years before we actually started working on it yeah. and also I just found I found I came across some really interesting things that I wanted to put in the program 
and it, I mean, it was perfectly fine because it was still relevant to the, to the topic and, you know, a reasonable proportion of the original contributors were still in there. Um, as far as I remember, when we came to actually starting work on the program and signing the project documents, um, we had to submit an updated uh, program treatment that was updated from the original application. And then when the program was broadcast and submitted to the uh, BAI, we had to again update that treatment again with what was actually, what was actually in the show. Um, so that's, that's how that worked. And they didn't have any difficulty with no, that? No, not at all, no. Okay. Thanks. Um, I, um, I'm a print journalist in the main, and I've never done a broadcast, but I'm interested in it. Um, I did do some broadcasting in my uh, journalism degree. Um, at the time, just to talk a bit about the technology that people are using now, uh, we used mini-discs. Mm -hmm. But do, is there any kind of, if you were looking to, you know, make a habit of this, is there any kind of particular equipment you could invest in, like... We, ju we just used uh, Zooms. Uh, do you know Zooms? They're just, you know, there's a Zoom H1 and a H2. I think the H1's about 100 euro and the H2's about 200 euro. You can make a program on your iPhone now. Yeah, you can get microphones for your iPhone now. Just get that, a microphone and just do it on your phone. And uh, yeah, and if you work with the station, they'll usually give you yeah. You know, as a freelancer, I did invest in this, the, the stuff outright. And funny, it wasn't. We didn't use it for broadcasting. We used it more for roundtable discussion. Hmm. And you, you get it's lovely because you can t tell the agents to shut up. You say I've eighty <laughs> minutes here, and you can cut it at the end because that thing's about ten pages of a magazine. Nobody's going to read any more than that. Um, the, the only note of caution that I would, would give you about equipment is uh, if you're working with a radio station, make sure, if you can, that you get your hands on a piece of equipment and that you can hold on to it. There's a danger in working out of pools of equipment. Oh, yeah. In that if different people are using different machines and you get a machine that's dodgy, you know, you may be doing a really important interview. And if, because there's a problem with the machine or because you're not used to using the machine, something goes wrong, you're in real trouble. So I recommend to people that whatever piece of machinery they're using, and if they're going to do a lot of broadcasting, acquire their own piece of machinery and have it and know it and use it and practice with it. Uh, because the thing you need to do is to get used to sound recording and to get used to recording wild track sound and actuality and all of that so as you're comfortable with what you're doing. Because there's nothing as bad and it happens, you know, it happens in professional radio stations, in the best of stations, that people go out and something goes wrong. Um, I had a student recently of my own who had done a series of interviews for a fairly important project and through no fault of hers, the card in the machine actually malfunctioned and she lost them. That's exactly what happened um, to me. With not me. her fault, uh, but you know, a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, is, so there, is there a minimum um, sort of side of sound files that, that broadcasters would consider acceptable? Um, like in my experience, the our sound producer always wanted, um, he preferred WAV files to MP3s because they were just a bit, which it wasn't ideal because you, it could limit, unless you had a very big memory card, it could limit you if you were, wanted to record for like a whole day or something, you know, or do a lot of recording. Um, but, that, but, if, but then again, a high, you know, a higher quality kilobytes per second MP3 was still usually okay. MP3s are lossy, which is probably what you ask yeah. for a WAV is raw, and then you can edit and export yeah. as MP3. Yeah. 
The other thing is that where you're working with a radio station, use the knowledge that there is within the station around what they use and what they want in terms of, of uh, what they use. Yeah. Uh, just Simon, I'm not sure if you can cover this or not, but other opportunities aside from the sound and vision, um, let's say programs like uh, Sunday Miscellany and so on, mm -hmm. I mean, are, are they open to that uh, still or is it all commissioned? That kind no, of no, uh, Sunday Miscellany, the series editor of Sunday Miscellany is a woman called Cleena Nianlun, <coughs> Um and as far as I'm aware, Cleena is open to pieces being sent in and we'll even correspond with people who are new uh, to her you know if you send her in something and she's not going to use it she will come back to you and tell you why she's not going to use it or how you might reshape it to make it more usable for what they want uh, so they are quite open to, to stuff and from what I've heard from other people who deal with them they seem to be fairly helpful um, although they don't I think pay a whole lot <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing just to, to say to you is that I'm, I have always been somewhat surprised in, in my career as a producer about some people working in print who will say to you, I don't broadcast. Um, it's madness if you're working as a journalist not to be as multi-skilled as you possibly can, particularly in this day and age. But even back, you know, back in the day, uh, I always thought it was madness. I mean, I remember court reporters who would say, no, I just don't do radio because I don't like it. There were other court reporters who were making significant money every week by appearing on the Pat Kenny show, Drive Time, and whatever the hell might have been around the place, and they're doing their five minutes based on copy they've already done. They're being paid by the organisation that employs them. They're gaining publicity for the organisation that employs them by going on the radio and saying, this is our son in whom we're well pleased from the Irish Times or whatever it is. Um, and they're making a ball of money out of it and people won't go there because they decide they don't like the sound of their own voice or something I think that's a luxury as freelancers we can't afford, we should begin to do in everything new media, radio video, wherever there's money to be made as a freelancer in the business of making money Barry McCall how about the Irish language or uh, bilingual programmes there's very little done bilingually by freelancers that I notice. Uh, there is very little done bilingually, and I think for any freelance, having a knowledge of the Irish language and being able to do stuff in the Irish language is additionally useful. There certainly are openings there um, that can be taken advantage of. You too can have a free fortnight in Falcara. <laughs> any other questions arising? You have four weeks the second for this. <laughs> <laughs> All done? All right. This is all done on, on broadcasting documentaries. What about broadcasting other kinds of pieces, like humour or skits or sketches? Or, you know, is there any possibility of breaking into that? There are, what, 20, approximately 27 commercial stations, licensed stations, about 20 community stations, and then the range of national stations, including all of the digital output now that RTE are doing. Uh, there's a lot of radio out there. There are a lot of people employed in radio. It's, it's quite a big industry. And I think if people have ideas, then they should be floating them to radio stations, and even to individual radio programmes. 
you know, to the kind of programs that, you know, 98 or 104 are doing, where they may be into a comedy sketch or something like that. Again, as we were saying this morning for print, making contacts with people, talking to them, asking them what they might like, floating them ideas. Because in truth, a lot of what's done is fairly dull, fairly unimaginative, and there's room for improvement. You know, and it's about having ideas, and if you have a good idea, pushing it, um, and seeing where you can sell it and get yourself exposure and then see where you can get the most money for it. Um, yes. What about different accents if you're wanted, wanting to be broadcast with, say, people with Nigerian English accents or Pakistani English accents? How, does, how do radio programmes deal with that at the moment and what, what's the kind of... There may be differences between individual editors on their view of that. I think the only difficulty with any accent is if there's a difficulty in understanding it. The level of work the listener may have to do in understanding an accent is the only issue for me around um, accents. And I think a mix of accents and a variety of accents is very good and essential <coughs> in broadcasting. Um, I used years ago when I was an RC editor uh, fight with some of my reporters because if you sent them out to do a vox pop, they tended to go down to the Merrion Centre at the end of the road. And certainly in those days, a lot of the people in the Merrion Centre all sounded rather the same. And many of them had an accent nobody was ever born with. So I used to suggest that I much preferred that they went into the ILAC Centre and got me a few real people with a range of, you know, nationalities. And the dart. Um, we, yes. There yes. is diversity now. There is so accents, I, I don't think, I don't think um, accents should be held against people. We've got over the notion that we all have to sound like we're trained by the BBC. But having said that, no more than somebody was talking this morning about don't throw apostrophes at paper like you're throwing something at a wall. Uh, use language well and use it carefully. And when you're doing stuff for broadcast, think about what you're saying and think, can I stand over it? Is it accurate? Is it exactly what I want to say? And is it good, clear, grammatically correct English? Uh, sometimes I have to tell you that applications for the, the sound and vision thing fall down on the basis that it's clearly somebody filling out a pro forma in a radio station, which they have, and they fill out the same pro forma for all applications. So you wind up getting in the application this series of 32 programs. And in the first paragraph it tells you that it's a series of six programs. But in cutting and pasting they have forgot to change what was in the previous application for another series. Now if you see that it doesn't help. <laughs> Is all I'll say. You would tend to refer back. Okay. Shall I win? Great. Lenny, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Just one other to that, a couple of other notes. Um, in addition to what Lenny was talking about, uh, the BAI and the SFI, um, it's very good to expand on as well. There are some other, there's uh, the Simon Cumbers Fund. I don't know if anyone's heard about that. They have a website. They will pay for not just broadcasting, but also print journalism. It's basically focused on third world development issues. If you have a story that can tie into that, you can apply for funding to them. The Mary Raftery Fund, named after late great Mary, it also has a fund which um, 
offers money for, again, both print and broadcasting. They're at the moment offering, in conjunction with the RT Investigates Unit, uh, training for people in doing uh, research journalism. I'll be posting details of that on the DublinFreelance.org website over the next few days when I get everything up as a result of today. Um, if you're not aware of it already, uh, check out Women On Air. Uh, it's been going about two, three years ago. It's incredibly useful. It's mostly uh, basically training in terms of how to sell yourself so that you're the person that's interviewed. Uh, also how to present yourself, what kind of expect questions you should expect during an interview and how to handle them and so on. Whether you're a court reporter or you're talking about a feature article that you've done, it's well worth looking into. Um, there's also a podcast on the freelance.org, DublinFreelance.org website by Sinead Ryan, uh, who talked at the last Freelance Forum just on that very topic. Basically, you've already written a feature. How can I turn that into an extra piece of income by spending 10 minutes talking to Pat Kenny or Sean O'Rourke mm -hmm. about it? It's worth listening to. Um, Simon, just the last note I have here, mentioned uh, Be At Everything, audio, print, video. Uh, another very good podcast on the freelance.org site is Philip O'Connor, who's now based in Sweden. But it doesn't matter. He can have a pen, he can have a Zoom recorder like the one I'm using here, video camera. A very good presentation from him on how to be flexible in what you're doing and basically using the same material, selling it through different media. Um, that's all I have to say. I have, I have one actual last note. If you're thinking of going to Dock on One, it's worth listening to The Curious Ear first. Um, 45 minutes can be a lot of radio time to fill. Uh, Curious Ear tends to be 8-10 minutes long, and it's, it's a good place to get started. It won't pay a huge fortune, but it's invaluable training experience. I'd like to um, thank Lenny. Sorry, just one thing there when you're talking about the yeah. Curious Ear, uh, Roman Kelly yeah. is the series producer of the Curious Ear and in my knowledge and experience of Ronan there is no more helpful person to be found in RTE than Ronan, he really is very good so if you're making an approach there Ronan is a very is a useful contact uh, Liam O'Brien who's the editor of the Dublin One yeah. I think at the moment uh, is also very good in terms of, of talking to people and trying to bring on ideas and don't call them three days before the BAI deadline. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did once with Liam. <laughs> and he was still kind enough to reply to me. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank Lenny. I'd like to thank Simon for their time. Thank you. Uh, pleasure having you both. And Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.